0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, and uh, if you didn't bring one, you're going to find them in the racks in front of you. We get this amazing transformation story, Uh, very excited to go through with you this morning. One of the greatest proofs of the authenticity of the Bible and of its trustworthiness to me is how the Bible never paints its heroes with these big, beautiful, broad brushstrokes making us look like... uh, Hollywood airbrush portraits. It's just not the case. God really shows in His Word what we're like as sinners who are in need of a Savior. And we get a classic example of that this morning when we go to this story in Acts chapter 9. So here's the goal for today. The goal is that, for one, we're going to see this amazing transformation, but that's not the only thought we should be leaving with is this transformation. What we really need to be understanding is how great is our God who causes this transformation. So let's pray together and we'll jump into this. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that what we're about to do will be for no gain whatsoever if your Holy Spirit is not involved, if you're not teaching and leading and guiding. So we invite that and ask that you allow us to gain understanding of who you are. Father, we pray for a God encounter. We do. We pray for every person in this auditorium that we will encounter you in a fresh new way. Make yourself real to us through your word, which you said is alive and active. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So last week we got to see Philip. And Philip is this individual who's working up in Samaria, northern Israel. God says, go down to meet an individual on the desert road. And he says he's on his way back to Africa. So Philip intersects with this guy. And purposely, because our God is a God of purpose and a God of order, definable actions says, go intercept this guy. He does do that. Why does God send Philip down to meet the Ethiopian eunuch? Because he wants the word of Jesus Christ taken to Africa. Now, this morning, we're going to see God intersect Saul on the road to Damascus. Why does God intend for this to happen? Because he knows that through this interaction with Saul, God's going to reach the opposite end of the world. He's going to reach into Rome. He's going to reach the Gentiles. He's going to reach the Greeks. So God is very intentional about what he does. But before we understand this story, we've got to understand the transformation that takes place. So we have to go back to Acts chapter 8 and see how Saul was defined at that time. In Acts chapter 8, when we were there a few weeks ago, we are told he's an individual who is ripping the church apart. You'll see this up on the screen from Acts chapter 8. He began ravaging the church. And I think you might remember, just a few weeks ago, I told you that verb describes a wild animal shredding its prey. The Greek word that's used here, it's talking about laying something to waste, literally to wreak havoc. So let's look at the Greek word up on the screen, Lumanohi, and it's got this meaning behind it of pouncing on something, opening it up for the intention of killing it. So think of a lion viscerally attacking its prey. This is Saul attacking the church. The the believers are being imprisoned and beaten. According to Acts chapter 26, this is what Paul's doing. He's not only throwing them in prison, he's beating them to the point where if they will submit and deny Jesus, he will set them free. If they will not deny Jesus, he sees them killed That's his goal. So if you want to substitute a modern day individual from 2015, take one of the leaders of ISIS and transport them back to the first century. And you've got an image of Saul. He's intent on killing Christians. Open season on believers. I read a fascinating book last summer. You might be interested maybe for a summer read. It's called I Saul, I, Saul. It was written by Jerry Jenkins. He wrote the Left Behind series in cooperation with Tim LaHaye. The two did it together. Well, he disappeared for like 10 years and and uh, came back up to the surface about a year ago and wrote this book called I Saul. He traces the history of Saul from childhood all the way to adulthood, but it's written in a drama setting. It's really quite good if you get a chance to read it. Here's what we know about this stage of Saul. He's the son of a Pharisee. He's born in Tarsus. He's the Jew of Jews. He calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he is totally sold out and dedicated to the law. And he is a brilliant student. Studies under Gamaliel, one of the highest learning centers you could find in the Middle East. The best introduction of Paul himself, Saul, comes from himself. It comes right out of Acts 22. He says this about himself. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, "'But brought up in this city,' meaning Jerusalem, "'educated under Gamaliel, "'strictly according to the law of our fathers, "'being zealous for God, just as you all are today. "'I persecuted this way.'" Remember that title as you move forward. It's a very important title. "'I persecuted this way to the death, "'binding and putting both men and women into prisons,' As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify, from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. A man, literally, whose devotion is so intense towards the law of Moses, it has completely controlled his life. As a matter of fact, he says in Philippians chapter 3, that it dominated him so much to such a degree that if you measured his life against the law of Moses, you would find him completely blameless. He did nothing wrong according to the law of Moses. But he says in First Timothy, I did it ignorantly. I didn't have the light. I didn't understand what I was doing. So as you look at this story of Saul, you're going to have to say, he is the last person on planet earth you would ever expect to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That forces us to ask a question, church. Is there anyone beyond the reach of God? Is there anyone beyond God's reach? We especially as a church have to be thinking through that question as we begin talking about the possibility of building a building. 37,000 people in Meridian Township alone, not to mention East Lansing, Holt, Mason, St. John's, DeWitt, All those areas where there's individuals who seem to be beyond the reach. They're not following Jesus Christ. Many individuals who are not in any way, shape, or form living a godly life who need to know the truth of who Jesus is. So we have to ask ourselves the question, is anyone beyond the reach of God? Let's move forward with the story. Acts chapter 9, and verse 1, it says this. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, we've already seen in the the stoning of Stephen the length that Paul is willing to go to accomplish his purposes. He's willing to murder people. So according to what Luke says here in verse 1, he's not just carrying out these actions. He's literally breathing threats and murder. It's open season on Jesus' followers. So hunting Christians consumes him. This is his way of life every day. It's his whole life. So the very air that he breathes Is murder. This is what is involved every single day for him. Murdering Jesus people. Now, when he says it's the disciples, he's not just talking about the twelve. And when you read that, you might be thinking, Well, he's talking about the twelve apostles. You are a disciple of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, according to the Bible, you're considered to be a disciple. You're not an apostle. Because you weren't personally, physically called by Jesus, but you are a disciple, which means you're a student of Jesus. So when he's pursuing the disciples, he's pursuing everyone in the church. He's pursuing those who belong to the way. According to verse 2, that's the title that's attached to you and I, and it comes from Jesus himself. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That phrase, the way, is the Greek word hodos, hodos. And it's the definition that was given to you long before you and I were ever known as Christians, presuming that you're a Christ follower this morning. If you're a Christ follower in the first century, you're known as a member of the hodos, meaning the journey. Jesus says, I am the journey. I am the way to God. I am the highway. And you can only get there through me. So people were known as members of the hodos. It's a great title. Because it means we're in this process going towards God. It's secure in Jesus, but we're moving that direction. That's why we're called the people of the Hodos. Now, we find Saul on another highway. He's on the road to Damascus. He's literally going to the capital of what we know today as present-day Syria. In that day, it was known as the capital city, but it was the capital city of another nation. It wasn't known as Syria at that time. It's a very, very large population, capital city, and it's incredibly significant in the Bible because it's got a very large Jewish population. So Saul is making his way there. His desire to go there tells us a whole lot about his personality for this reason. It's a six-day journey. So imagine getting up tomorrow morning and you begin walking And you walk all day long. And Tuesday morning, you do the same thing. And Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, you finally have walked so far. You've arrived at your destination for one reason, to arrest people so you can drag them away in chains. What kind of rage is that, church? You're looking at spiritual warfare. Where does that stem from? I think you're seeing something that's literally driven by Satan himself. So humanly speaking... When you look at Saul, he seems completely immune to Jesus. There is no Jesus vaccine that seems that it can reach him. And he seems enormously satisfied with the conclusions that he's reached regarding Christians. This guy is terrifying. He literally is the reason the church in Jerusalem broke apart. Because of what he was doing to them. Now, before we move forward to the story, just one more detail. He's talking with King Agrippa in this passage you're about to see, and he describes the method by which he did these things. It says this in Acts 26, Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged with them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. See, this is not a guy you want mad at you, is it? He's willing to leave his own country and go to other countries, to foreign countries, to hunt you down, because he believes you need to be punished. So he gets word. He gets word that people of the way are hiding out in Damascus And Damascus is significant, not just because it's a capital city, but it's got a reputation. It's got a reputation of being this place of hotbed of heresy. That's why he's going to Damascus. It's a a long journey, but he's got these letters, which are the arrest warrants in one hand, and the chains, the handcuffs in another hand. He can haul these people away because he has the authority to do it. So his entourage sets out. Now, the normal route he would take would take him right through the heart of Samaria, What's been going on in Samaria? Philip's been there, and Peter and John, and there's been a revival in the nation. There's Christians popping up all over the place. That in itself is not just enough to irritate him, but that does irritate him, and then he's on his way to Damascus where he knows it's this hotbed of heresy, so he's filled with intense hostility as he approaches Damascus. His world is about to be turned upside down. Verse 3, and as he was traveling... It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he's charging full speed into Damascus, right? And he stops dead in his tracks. Why? Great light. He's just encountered the Shekinah glory of God himself. Jesus, in all his glory, has revealed himself to Saul. And so God's glory envelops this little group. Now Moses describes something like this. Daniel describes something like this. John writes about it in Revelation. A blazing, blinding light that is so intense that it's brighter than the noonday sun. As a matter of fact, if you read Acts 22, Paul says that. It occurred right at noon, at the height of the Mediterranean heat. Now how bright does a light have to be to be brighter than the noonday sun in the Mediterranean? Pretty intense. To the degree that when you read Revelation chapter 4 and you see John saying, I looked and I saw the throne of God and flashes of lightning were coming forth from it. You're talking about the Shekinah glory of God. So if you've looked at a thunderstorm and you've been blinded by the intense brilliance of a lightning flash, you know the kind of whiteness that Paul is describing here. Intensely brilliant. God envelops this little group and at the same time the light occurs, he begins to hear this voice and it knocks him to the ground because he's just encountered the risen Jesus. Now Saul knows the voice is superior. He doesn't yet know that it's Jesus but he knows there's a rumbling above him, and he's encountered the Shekinah glory of God. He's knocked to the ground, but he doesn't yet know who he's encountered. And when he's horizontal, he hears this voice, why are you persecuting me? This week, church, it hit me. God, in that statement alone, was reminding us there is nothing that happens to you here on planet Earth that heaven is not aware of. Jesus is saying, I'm aware of what's going on to my people, and you're persecuting me. So when you're wounded here on earth, heaven knows about it. Heaven is certainly aware of it. Now the first thought that has to be popping into Saul's mind at this point is, I'm being rebuked by God because he's encountered the Shekinah glory. He hears the voice. He can't understand it. But he believes he's carrying out God's work. He thinks by killing Christians, He's doing what he's supposed to do according to the law. He is unable even to articulate his thoughts in the midst of his confusion. So all he can come up with is what you see in verse five. And and he said, who are you, Lord? It is really difficult for you and I this morning to grasp how the words he's about to hear in response to that question come smashing into his world. His consciousness is going to go reeling. Watch for the answer, verse 5, part B. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine the sense of conviction in that moment? The overwhelming realization that what you have been doing is fighting against God. He is crushed to the ground, literally, to confront the reality of what he's been doing. He's been beating people to submit and deny Jesus, the very same Jesus who says, I'm the Lord of glory and I'm talking to you from heaven. You'll notice, maybe you've read this passage 20 times in your life, you'll notice at this point in verse 4, Paul never speaks again. Uh, I'll use his name interchangeably, Saul and Paul, because he's referred to both in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Acts 13:9, he's exclusively from that point forward, just referred to as Paul. But at this point, he has no words to say. His worst nightmare would be not only to discover that Jesus is alive, but that Christianity is God's truth. And now he finds he's been fighting against God. So he's got nothing to say for himself. He's completely shattered. How can you respond when you realize you're wrong? You've been going down the wrong path. And God has set you on the right path. And worse yet, he's not just persecuting people he believed to be criminals. He's persecuting followers of God, Jesus' people. So Jesus gives him instructions, verse 6, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. Now notice there's no elaboration of the vision whatsoever. Throughout Corinthians, throughout Galatians, and even further into Acts, Paul gives more details about what he saw. But we get no elaboration here whatsoever. All the emphasis is on the fact of one thing. Saul has seen Jesus. His own testimony for the rest of his life focuses on one fact, I saw Jesus. I saw the risen Lord. He's real. And the certainty this morning, even in 2015, that what Paul experienced on the road to Damascus is real is found in his own writings. When he's an aged man looking back on this period of time, and you find it in the book of Philippians. Look at the transformation church. Philippians chapter 3. I count all things to be lost in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. What does it take for a man whose entire life was dedicated to the law of Moses to say, The law means nothing if I can't have Christ? I sacrifice everything that I might know him and the glory of his resurrection. That's what he goes on to say. So for the rest of his life, Saul offers only one explanation for what you see on the screen, that he met the risen Jesus Christ, and it changed him forever. Verse 7 takes us to another side of the story because you got some men traveling with him. Verse 7 says this, The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and through though his eyes were open he could not see he could see nothing and leading him by the hand they brought him into Damascus and he was 3 days without sight and neither ate nor drank so God allows the crew that's traveling with him to authenticate what happened they can hear the sound they don't understand the voice Paul said later, they didn't understand the words that were spoken, but they could hear it. They can see the light, so they can verify something extraordinary took place. As a matter of fact, we're told according to Acts 22, they were knocked to their feet as well, right down, face forward, planted on the ground. Now physically and emotionally, Saul has a reaction to this. He's so overwhelmed by what he has experienced, he's now caused miraculously to become blind. And we're told he's not going to eat and he's not going to drink for three days. The experience is that powerful. Hear me on this. The miracle is not punitive. God is not punishing Saul in this moment. He's allowing him by his grace to have some alone time. Saul is going to get to talk to God for three days. He needs it. He needs this time by himself. The experience of what he's just gone through with the light The sound being knocked to his feet, the revelation of the truth, the entire experience is utterly crushing. Some of you who have gone through great trauma have known this kind of emotion. Maybe the sudden loss of a loved one or maybe watching something happen on planet Earth. I I remember watching in 9-11, 14 years ago, if you can imagine, Some, some here were not born when the Twin Towers fell. 14 years ago, we watched those towers fall And I had no words. It it just takes the life right out of you. Saul in this moment has no ability to respond to what has happened to him. God has crushed him and he's brought him to one particular point. He's brought him to the point of consecration where he can use him. Now, there's a cool transition that takes place. So we're gonna set Saul apart and we're gonna move very quickly now. The rest of the story moves quite fast when we move into verse 10 and it begins talking about one of my favorite guys and his name is Ananias. It says this in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here am I, Lord. Now, when you say, here am I, Lord, you're saying, I'm ready, right? Right? Whatever you've got for me, I'm ready. Now, Abraham did that. Samuel did that. Here I am. Go ahead. I'm ready. How do you want to assign me? What do you want me to do? So Ananias is a disciple, and he's likely one of the spiritual leaders of the church in Damascus. He's a very prominent person, highly respected. How he came to Christ, we don't know. It it looks like military trade routes and caravans made their way up into Syria and eventually told people about Jesus and maybe that's how Ananias came to Christ. We don't know, but here's what we do know. Ananias does not know about Saul's conversion. All he knows is that God's coming to him in a vision and telling him he wants him to do something. Now remember, he's just said, what do you want me to do? Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Now the instructions are really precise, right? He gives the exact exact street address of where he can find Saul. It, It kind of answers the question, does God know what you're up to and what you're doing at any time of the day, right? God always knows. And so he knows the street address of where Saul is at and he knows what's happened to him. So Ananias, he's staying with a man by the name of Judas. He lives on Straight Street. That's like saying to someone, if you go to Chicago and find Michigan Ave, you'll find me. It's that famous of a street in, in antiquity. As a matter of fact, you can find this street today still in Damascus, very famous street. So Jesus instructs him, go find the guy, go find the guy, Ananias, who kills Christians. How'd you like that assignment, Church? Go find the guy who's willing to cut your head off. He hates Christians that much, and Ananias knows it. See, I suspect that God has total buy-in from Ananias until this moment. Did you say Saul? Saul from Tarsus, that Saul, the Saul who kills Christians? That one? Well, God continues to fill in the blanks. He says in verse verse 11, For he is praying, and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. So you get a detail in verse 11. We're told what he's been up to. Saul has been praying for three days, according to what we read there. See, what I see happening here is God is caring for Ananias. He's giving him details he can't know on his own. He's saying, "I've gone ahead of you. I already know what's happening. Even if you're surprised, I'm not surprised. I've prepared the path. This is fertile soil. So he needs this vision information right there. He needs to know that God has already been there before he gets there. So this is God saying, I'm in control. You're not. This is no surprise to me. Ananias, you're the answer to Saul's prayer. Wow. Can you imagine? The guy who is most hated among Christians, who's killing Christians, is now praying for God to send someone to him and you're the one what a severe test of faith let's move forward and let's watch Ananias's enthusiastic answer verse 13 but Ananias answered lord i have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at jerusalem And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. This is like saying, God, I know you're omniscient, but let me tell you some things, okay? I need to fill in the blanks for you. Do you realize what you're asking me to do? See, word on the street is he has both the personality and the power to throw me in jail and to kill me. I'm not sure why you and I argue with God. I won't even ask for a show of hands. I'll just put mine up. I know I argue with God. I'm thinking you probably do too. It's a human tendency to want to fill God in on things that he already knows. And that's what you see Ananias doing here. Jonah did the same thing. Moses did it. Gideon did it. Do you notice as you read this passage that Damascus church is already completely aware of Saul's intent? It's subterranean there, but Ananias knows it. He knows that Saul's coming, and he knows he's coming to arrest people, and he knows he intends to destroy people, completely understanding the why. So I can relate to Ananias' hesitation. God has asked me to do some crazy things in my life. God has asked my wife and I to do some crazy things in our life. I'm thinking he's probably asked you to do some things that have caused you to wonder, should I really be stepping out on this ledge, whether or not I know that I'm going to be caught God's saying, do you trust me in those moments? Do you trust me? Even though you can't see the end of it, I can. God's saying that to Ananias. I'm omniscient. I understand what has happened here. The reaction of Ananias should be screaming something to you right now. It underscores the absolutely incredible magnitude of the thought that somebody like Saul could turn to Jesus. It seems incomprehensible. But is anyone beyond the reach of God, church? Is anyone outside the grasp of our Father who wants them to know salvation in Jesus Christ? That's what you're watching here. No one is beyond God's reach. Let's move forward with the story. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It is incredibly ironic that Saul, who wanted Stephen's death, will later suffer far more than Stephen ever did. Stephen was persecuted to the death, but he was killed in his first persecution. Saul is going to be battered and battered and battered and battered and battered over and over again, many times appearing as though he is dead. You read the accounts for yourself when you get to the books of First and Second Corinthians when he talks about what happened to him. See, what God has just done for us is he has just highlighted the nature of the change that's going to take place that is so dramatic in this man's life. Instead of being the persecutor, He's going to be God's chosen instrument to advance the kingdom. So I'm going to get deep with you for just about three minutes here. So far, we've just looked at a story. This is about as deep as I'm going to go today when we look at verse 15 and 16 and understand what's really taking place here. When he says he's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, he's using a legal term. He's literally saying, Paul is going to represent me in courtrooms. He's going to go into the royal court He's going to go before the courts of judges. And he's going to go into synagogues. God is giving us a future glimpse of what's going to happen to Saul. These are a fulfillment of Jesus' own words. Let me refresh your memory. Take you back to the book of Luke, Luke 21, 12. Jesus speaking. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. See, you're getting a complete picture of future Paul God has just told Ananias this is what's going to happen to this guy so grasp this this is where it gets deeper just don't lose me on this the church's most vehement persecutor is going to become now persecuted for the sake of Jesus would you say yeah sign me up for that I'm totally in for that When God says he's going to represent me to the kings, the Gentiles, the sons of Israel, do you think that's something that Saul would have designed for himself? See, Luke, I believe, is pointing this out for us very specifically so that we understand this is God's purpose, so that those who seem completely unreachable will be reached. Up till now, what have we learned in eight chapters in the book of Acts? The church in Jerusalem was very focused inwardly on the church in Jerusalem. They were growing exponentially, but it took God to force them to go to Samaria to begin reaching people who were beyond their boundaries. Now we're seeing God take them even beyond Samaria into the Gentile world through Saul. Here's my conclusion. Paul would have had no great problem with Rome whatsoever if he had just focused on Jews in Jerusalem. Rome wouldn't have come against him. It's when he begins reaching into the Gentile world that Satan really turns it on. And the opposition and the persecution intensifies to such a degree that you find that Christianity would have been spared a head-on collision with Rome if it hadn't been for what Saul was doing. Here's Luke's point. Jesus himself brought about this strategy. See, man would not choose this on his own. Who would do this to himself? It's certainly not a strategy Paul thought up. But very clearly, it's incredibly compelling because it came directly from Jesus. So here's my conclusion on this deep part. There is no one beyond the reach of God, but there is an incredible cost to be paid, church, in order to reach those who seem unreachable. You've got people in your own family who seem unreachable. There's a cost to be paid. There's people in your work environment, there's a cost to be paid. People in your neighborhood, there's a cost to be paid. Paul is being told here, through Ananias, literally, there's going to be a huge cost. So let's watch how Ananias follows through with this. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. So Ananias has fulfilled the assignment that God has given him. But very cool. He calls him Brother Saul. How hard do you think that was for the Ananias who was back in his own house when God said, I want you to go find the Christian killer. What happened in his heart between the time when he left his house, went to Straight Street and showed up at Judas's house and said, "Uh, is there a guy here by the name of Saul? I've got to talk with him. What did God do in his heart? Something incredible has taken place here. See, Jesus sent him with a purpose. He said, you're going to go there and put your hands on him and it's going to restore his sight. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's going to be baptized. But beyond himself, Ananias takes the effort to say, you're my brother. Let's reach back, church, into what we learned last week just briefly. Philip, God sent to the Ethiopian eunuch, the man on his way back to Africa, to rescue a soul who was spiritually dead. We talked about every one of us are spiritually dead until God reaches into our world and wakes us up and brings us to spiritual life in Jesus Christ. What we're seeing here is the exact same thing. Barnabas has recognized this man has been brought back. God has rescued him. He can now call him a brother in Christ. Do you think someone who is the most hated individual in the world by the Christians and is soon to be the most hated individual in the world by the Jews, needs to know that he's got a brother. He needs to know that there's somebody there with him. God has moved, I think, through Ananias to reach into this man who was dead but is now alive, and he needs to be strengthened by a brother in Christ. Let's finish it out. Verse 19 says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. So this verse really illuminates for us the authenticity of Paul's conversion. Now, the time that he spent with the disciples here it is probably them filling him in on details of Jesus. He knows a lot about the Old Testament. But I'm thinking they're spending time telling him about who Jesus is, but apparently he doesn't need a lot of time because you find him right away, he's out preaching Jesus. And do you notice? He's preaching him as the Son of God. That will mark Paul for the rest of his life. He's always talking about Jesus as the Son of God, declaring his deity. What was Jesus killed for, church? What did he declare himself to be? Son of God. That was the reason they crucified him. So Saul is saying, it's real. I've not only seen him resurrected and he talked to me, he is the Son of God. So you find him right away, day one, he's talking about Jesus as the Son of God, proclaiming Jesus. Now, how shocked are you if you're the Jews at the synagogue waiting for the architect of death to show up and begin hauling Christians off to prison? How shocked are you when he shows up and begins talking about Jesus? See, they're not expecting him to preach Jesus in their synagogues. They simply can't comprehend this drastic change. Verse 21 says this, All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, this is not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ." Proving Jesus is the Christ, if you write in your Bible, you might want to circle that. In the the Greek world, there's this element that's described when somebody's putting together a project. So if you're putting together like a puzzle and you're picking up pieces of the puzzle and assembling it, that's the imagery here. Maybe you've put together a toy for a child before and you found all the pieces and you've had to assemble a toy. That's the imagery here. What Saul is doing is reaching into the Old Testament assembling all of the verses that explain who Jesus is and proving that Jesus is the Christ to the point where these people are utterly astonished. Now here's where we move next because this guy is absolutely on fire doing what he's doing. Verse 23 begins to end it. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Many days, the biblical timeline is three years. For three years, Saul's hanging around the area of Damascus. And apparently during that period of time, he went into a desert area known as Arabia. Don't think of Saudi Arabia, that'd be Africa. Think of Asia Minor. The area that we think of today as like modern day Iraq. He moved into that area, studied the word of God. And when he comes back to Damascus, he comes back so powerfully, they can't stand him. He comes back with such authority, they want to kill him. So he decides to go to Jerusalem. Paul said this himself in Galatians 1.17, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, by the way, and stayed with him 15 days Did you notice he's got disciples at this point? We don't know where his disciples came from, but he's got disciples attending to him. Here's what's really clear Saul's teaching is so intense that they can't stand him. They don't want him talking about Jesus anymore, but they can't refute it, so they plot to kill him. First time somebody tries to kill him in in the Bible, in the book of Acts. Let's finish the story, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him. Can you believe that? Who could understand that? Not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Under the category of news that sounds too good to be true, you could put verse 28. They were all afraid of him because he's naming Jesus as his Savior. It just seems too good to be true. It absolutely makes you suspicious, right? So you can see why Barnabas became very quickly his best friend. Because Barnabas steps in as a mediator and begins to negotiate and explain, this is what happened to this guy. This is why this is real. So verse 28 tells us the conclusion. He begins moving freely around Jerusalem. That speaks to Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, when you'd find the disciples moving freely around Jerusalem talking about Jesus, meaning, Paul has been accepted into the apostolic circle. He's, he's one of the 12. They've accepted him in. But very, very quickly, he stirs up a hornet's nest. We see this, verse 29, and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. If you're in the church at that time, you're probably trying to figure out, is it better to have Paul on our side or not on our side? Because this guy's causing controversy every place he goes. Kind of reminds you of Stephen, because Stephen, apparently in the same synagogue, was arguing with these people and they wanted to put him to death as well. Well, the same thing happens to Paul. They want to kill him, so they're going to put him on a boat and they're going to send him back to Tarsus. Here's the last two verses, church. Verse 30, but when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So you've got a time span between when Paul leaves Caesarea and he shows up in Tarsus and he stays there for what appears to be 10 years. It's known as the silent years of Paul. Most understanding this passage and looking at it saying, this has got to be the time when he began establishing churches. We'll look at this later when we get into the book of Acts, but we're going to leave him there for now. Leave him in Tarsus until Barnabas brings him back. Let's circle back around to the question I asked this morning. Is there anyone who is beyond the reach of God? We've come to the conclusion that there is not. If God can reach out and take Saul by the shirt collar and let him see the reality of who Jesus is, can he do that to someone who's very dear in your life? Helping them to understand who God is? Last week... Philip specifically encountered the man from Africa because God wanted the word of God to go into Africa. This week, God encountered Saul specifically because God wants the word of Jesus to go into Rome, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. You this morning have learned the word hodos. You are on a journey just like those individuals. What does God intend to do through you On your journey, who does he seek to change through you? Is there someone who needs to hear of Jesus because you're bold enough to speak like these individuals about who Jesus is to you? This very same God who's intentional, who takes opportunities like this to reach Africa, to reach Rome, still wants to reach this world around us. I can't do this passage justice without closing with just two verses. And they come from a very aged Paul at the end of his life. And he's writing to his protege, Timothy, looking back over the course of his life about what God has produced in him. Let's end it this way. It comes from 1 Timothy 1.13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet, I was shown mercy. Jump down to the next paragraph. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet, for this reason, I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, To the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Paul could just keep going forever and ever and ever. Amen. How great is our God. That's the kind of transformation that you can look at and say, Jesus Christ did that. Only Jesus can take a person who is a blasphemer an aggressive persecutor and turn them into someone who's trying to reach the world for Jesus. When when we go to prayer right now, church, I'm gonna be praying for boldness for us, that we would see this same kind of boldness in our life that we see evidenced here in Scripture. Let's pray about what God's up to here at our church. Would you do that with me? Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that what we're about to ask for is laying ourselves down. And we sang it before this teaching, and now we have to be just as willing to say it afterwards that we lay ourselves down. We are not our own. We want your will, and we want it your way. But we would willingly say there's times when our will gets in the way all the time, and your will is very uncomfortable. I pray, Father, for those who are gathered in this auditorium right now that the reality of the words that we've just studied would sink in to such a degree that it would cause us to want to equally be as bold as we see these individuals being. We have family members, Father. We have friends. We have coworkers who don't know Jesus. And now we've learned that there is a cost. There's a cost for them finding Christ. And it may cost us our reputation. It may cost us financially. It certainly will cost us emotionally. So, Father, we have to trade all those things that will cost us for a boldness that comes only from you. Father, I pray for that boldness to rest heavily upon this church. That as you continue to grow and increase us in size, that you will increase us in boldness in proportion to it. That we will speak mightily in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and our soon coming King, in whose name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.